Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this monthly Market Insights, Phil Attreed, Head of Investment Consulting, talks to Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, about the first quarter of the year and what might lie ahead. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello and welcome to the April episode of Monthly Market Insights. I'm Phil Attreed, Barclays Head of Investment Consulting, and today Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer, and I will reflect on the first quarter of the year, and we'll also take a look forward to what might lie ahead. So, Will, let's start with a few thoughts on 2021 so far. How would you characterise what's been, I suppose, quite an eventful start to the year, really? It has been eventful, and it's eventful outside my house as well, Phil, because they've literally just decided to start trying to put scaffolding up next door. So forgive the background noise. But I think, you know, the point is that we've had a very strong start to the year for, you know, stocks, diversified commodities, and an accelerating sell-off in core government bonds, uh, gold, and some of the superstars of of the crisis in investment terms. Now, the driving force here, we've discussed before, you and I, it's two things, really. It's, it's, well, it's, The main central thing is a sharp improvement in the outlook for global growth. But this is driven by two sort of main things so far this year. You know, one, you've seen a very sharp drop off in infection rates around many countries. Uh, Now, part of that is down to, you know, successful vaccination campaigns. The other bit is that there is has been more and much bigger stimulus than had been you know, priced into markets. And to give you a sense of sort of how big the upgrade is, so if you look at the US economy, for instance, and look at what was expected at the beginning of the year in terms of US output growth for 2021, um, it was just below 4%. That's now nearly 6% uh, in terms of consensus expectations. So there's been a big growth upgrade, and that has played through uh, into capital markets in the way that we just described. Quite. I mean, it certainly has been a very strong start to the year for stock markets, building on, I suppose, what was, to be honest, quite a staggering recovery from March's volatility back with with the sort of first instances of the COVID lockdown. One thing I suppose that has maybe surprised me a little bit is how resilient continental European stocks have been, I suppose, to what's um, proving to be a a worsening of the situation in the region. What's your take on that? Yes, I mean, certainly the recent experience of continental Europe has been less favourable than US and UK, both in terms of infection rates and indeed kind of, you know, the sort of vaccine news flow. Now, the good news here is that case counts seem to be in the process of peaking, even in Paris, which is one of the sort of hot spots at the moment. You are also seeing an acceleration, much against the news headlines, you're seeing an acceleration in, um, in, in vaccination rates as well, which is you know very welcome. More broadly, though, I'd make a couple of points. So, so the first thing is, you know, and I think this is a sort of, a, this is a media trap to a certain bit, but, you know, we need to beware of trying to um, make too much out of the successes and failures of vaccine distribution as investors around the world that, you know, there are surely lessons to be learned here. But it's also worth remembering that a year ago, you know, the talking heads were prospecting for meaning in the very different case counts and economic outcomes seen around the world at the time in the sort of opening exchanges um, of the pandemic. Then it was the UK that compared unfavorably. Now, 
Then, as now, we would warn of the sort of desire to derive lessons and judgment prematurely. You know, this pandemic pandemic has certainly exposed some strengths and weaknesses in the broader design of many countries, from societal to, to, to institutional. However, we will need time to distinguish between luck both good and bad, uh, an actual design flaw to the extent that such things can be seen as design flaw. Now, the other point to remember from a purely investment perspective, I think, is just remember that when you're buying a an, an index or a company, you know, you're not just accessing this coming year's profits. You're actually accessing all of future profits, supposedly, or our estimation of that mountain of corporate cash flows that might lie ahead of you. Now, the point about that is that if you have a some slight slippage in the vaccination campaign, for example, that represents more of a chip out of that massive cash flow mountain than anything more substantial. So you wouldn't expect um, a gigantic share price reaction to these kind of slight slippages in reopening timetable. Quite. And I mean, I know that you've often highlighted that, you know, a good degree of higher profile data, I suppose, both economic historically, but also now COVID data, it's quite backward looking in nature by the time it's actually published. And so rather than being useful as insight for sort of future investments, you know, decision making. With that in mind, we've also spoken a little bit about inflation in last month's uh, edition. You've done a pretty detailed Word on the Street podcast on that subject too. Uh, But do you think markets are maybe in danger of this type of sort of extrapolation when it comes to inflation? So... If the if the anticipated spike inflation comes, that I think you know some forecasters are, are, are sort of putting out there, do you think that it could unnerve the market, or does the team maybe see uh, it more likely that markets will look through, they'll take that in their stride and, and look through to the other side, if you know what I mean? It's a very interesting question, Phil. I mean, we're certainly entering an interesting period for markets. I think I think you're right. And like you say, inflation should pick up, you know, quite sharply um, in the months in the months ahead. In some part, that's a function, like you say, of kind of lapping the slump in inflation in price pressures that we saw in the onset of the crisis. You know, the actual central bankers are telling us to relax, that they see some inflation coming, but they see it as transitory, that they see it as a bump in the road rather than anything more more permanently. But there are some credible voices warning of slightly more dangerous times from inflation. You know, so for instance, Charles uh, Goodhart, formerly uh, of the Bank of England, that Monetary Policy Committee, he co-authored a book where they look at some of the driving forces behind the disinflationary trends of the last few decades. And they argue that a large part of it is to do with, you know, a combination of globalization and demographics. And what I mean by that is essentially, you know, China's accession to the world economy provided a mass of huge labor supply shocks, so a gigantic amount of labor, which is, among many other causes, seen as taking away, uh, you know, labor market bargaining power in the developed world. Now, their argument is that that kind of labor market supply boom is gone. And actually, you could start to see it reverse in uh, in coming years and that actually you know just as the central bankers move to something called an average inflation targeting regime because they've got so frustrated with trying to generate some inflation they're becoming more accommodative in sense that actually underneath the slow moving economic forces are actually moving towards uh, a more inflationary uh, environment so you know there are threats out there we've got to be aware but i think you know we go back to that same point that we always make which is you know inflation forecasting should be a low conviction activity you know the bank of england expressed this statistically at the moment you know the confidence interval of their two-year inflation forecasts are twice as wide as normal. So, you know, they see a one in three chance that inflation will be either above 4% or below 0% on a two-year horizon. That gives you some sense of that uncertainty. But I think the main 
sort of message from us is kind of keep an open mind, I think. And I guess the point that you and JP and the team would be making is that by design, the, the for, for those invested with us, you know, the portfolios that we're managing, the multi-asset class funds that we're managing for our clients as well, they should be robust to, to both of those worlds that you point out, the one where inflation is suddenly a problem and also the one where potentially disinflation persists, you know, has also been talked about. Yes, I think that's exactly correct, Phil. You spent too much time with us. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, we're deliberately doing the opposite of organizing our assets as a sort of macho bet on a single vision of the future. You need to be able to, you know, the point really is, is you're trying to generate the maximum possible returns in a variety of macroeconomic paradigms, not just a continuation of the recent past, but the multitude of paths ahead that, that, that exist and uh, will always exist. And that is the point about kind of diversified investing to a certain extent. And it's uh, not just me spending too much time either. Just to finish on, there was actually a point a, ch- a point of challenge, actually, from a client that we were with uh, just the other day, challenging, I suppose, your views, our views around future productivity, which you, you, you reference quite regularly. She'd actually come across an article uh, referencing Robert Gordon. So he's a, a US economist known for his pessimism on the topic of productivity. I know you know that well, Will. But the argument there being that humans um, maybe have actually discovered and fully exploited most uh, of the sort of important inventions already out there. This, of course, goes against uh, what the client had been hearing from you on a number of these calls and podcasts that we do. But of course, you know, if that were to be true, then a, a lower growth future, of course, could mean lower returns for a diversified portfolio as well. Some thoughts on on that challenge. Yes, thank you, Phil. I mean, a loathsome I to go up against kind of, you know, the big heavyweights in the in the economics world like Robert Gordon. But I mean, there are lots of views here. Um, and I think it is really important, as you say, productivity is literally everything when it comes to portfolio returns, you know, over the long term. So if that we are in a new world where all of the inventions have been done, exploited and so on, then you could you should expect much lower returns from uh, a diversified portfolio. I mean, much, much lower. So, you know, Gordon's pessimism, like you say, is based on the idea that the game changing inventions of the past, like electricity, you know, what's called general purpose technologies, they're behind us. Now, the idea on top of this, you know, he's not he's not alone in saying this. So the idea that good ideas are actually getting harder to find is backed up by some interesting work from some other academics other equally famous academics who looked at kind of declining returns of research and development since the 1930s. Now, however, you know, what often is a very nuanced take on the subject in the original academic piece, and Robert Gordon's is a very nuanced take in a way, you know, it can lose some of that nuance when it hits the media. And, you know, the conclusions are sort of simplified to a certain extent. Now, to show how finely balanced they are, actually, there's a some recent work on the productivity story in the US in the 20th century, trying to tell the story overall, uh, because what Robert Gordon would argue is that, you know, productivity is very much weighted to the first half. And afterwards, you find this slow decline. And actually, some revisions of the statistics show a much smoother line, and that actually, the great inventions of the past may have contributed less to measured productivity than the likes of Robert Gordon would argue. And the point there is that the sources of productivity are more diversified, more various than some have previously argued, and less centred on the need to come up with the great new kind of the electricity of today or, you know, the, 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 you know, the various other the various other ideas. Now, you know, from my perspective, even if you were to go down that route to argue that none of quantum computing, AI, sort of major breakthroughs in those subjects will remain elusive to us, you know, for a 
kingdom come. I, I think that seems unrealistic or unrealistically pessimistic. The other thing I think that I think there's a couple of final really important points to make with productivity, which I think just slightly answer the question. The one, the central input into this story is us. Not me, probably more likely you, but us as in humankind. And the more of us there are, the better life gets is the inference. Now, there are really interesting multidisciplinary studies looking at the first industrial revolution and the causes of the first industrial revolution. And there's no one answer here. There's a multitude of answers. But there's an increasingly growing or there's a growing argument that actually the birth of the industrial revolution lies in a surge in nutrition in the 1730s, a series of bountiful harvests, and basically a, a generation is born in Britain, which then comes to be the great inventors, which changed literally the history of the world. And some are pointing to that very direct link between well-fed, well-educated humans and the ability to innovate and generate new kind of inventions. There's loads more I can say on that. I won't bang on about it, but it's a really interesting subject. And I think that's that's one thing. And you can sort of go down the Stephen Pinker sort of side and say, look, in the bottom billion people there are, if genius is evenly distributed, there are a million people of genius level IQ. Now, what that becomes so important to grant those parts of the global population education, opportunity, and the ability to have those ideas. And, you know, you could argue even that the smartphones that we're using to record this, you know, half the adult population, something like it, has a smartphone. You've essentially put the means of production into everyone's hands. I think it's very unlikely that no one's going to think of anything positive to do. I and mean, we could all just spend our time you know, uh, being rude to celebrities and playing Candy Crush. But I think others will, you know, others will use them more uh, vitally. And the other thing I think, you know, is just to, like I say, the second point is really about focusing less on the big inventions, the big kind of famous sexy inventions that we've we've all talked about, you know, the electricity, the computer chip and so on, and, and a sort of following surge in productivity. And actually, the closer you look, the more it looks like just myriad inventions coming across all sorts of interlocking areas. So it's, it's much less of that kind of stop-start process and a more a continuous process of innovation. There's loads more to say on it, but I won't. But I think the major point to make is that I, I can't get too depressed about the future of productivity at the moment. I find it quite difficult to, uh, given all that I've read and all that I, I think I know on this subject. So I would, yeah, I would challenge that. And I do think that, you know, future returns are well based on the future of human innovation and productivity. Well, I have to say, I much prefer living in Will's, uh, Will's optimistic uh, world <laughs> and the better returns to portfolios that potentially that brings as well. Thank you as always, Will, for sharing your thoughts today. Thank you also to our viewers and our listeners for joining us. And if you would like to hear more from us before the next monthly market insights, please do seek out our weekly podcast, Word on the Street, where we share all of our latest views on worldwide uh, market developments. Otherwise, Will and I will be back with you next month. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.